is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell is in the cloud. Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Masks in school may be a thing of the past. After March break, masks in school are gone after March break. How are we supposed to recognize anyone? Here's Scott We know as we are, what is this, day 13 into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we've heard about the 60-kilometer convoy. Uh, We've certainly seen the horrific images of uh, not only people being driven from their homes. There's over 2 million people have have left Ukraine. Uh, Those that have stayed, uh, horrific uh, signs of of the ravages of war and such. And obviously, uh, the the president, President Zelensky, uh, talking to UK Parliament uh, the other day with uh, a, an almost uh, Churchill-like uh, speech and and begging people to close the airspace, which of course, uh, as soon as air wars get into this and we're, we're uh, we cross that NATO. Uh, boundary that NATO border uh, into Ukraine that that triggers uh, theoretically U.S. and Russian conflict and therefore uh, possibly World War Three. What are the options other than that? How far can this go to that point or even nuclear reaction? Let's bring in Dr. Jane Bolden, Professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College, and with us now. Jane, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I hope you're well as well. We know that it, what happens if that line is crossed by either side. What options does NATO have other than doing that? How close can to the edge can we go here? Well, that's that's a difficult question to nail down exactly. I think the evidence of the uncertainty about where that line is, um, we've seen in the last 24 hours with the back and forth over the question of whether Um, older fighter jets could somehow go from Poland into Ukraine to be used by Ukrainian forces without it being seen by the Russians as NATO provocation. And the U.S. pulling away from that idea in the last 24 hours, I think, is an indication of how difficult it is to know how much support we can give Ukraine in practical military terms without triggering a full war. Um, So what happens in the meantime is that we, meeting NATO countries, try to do everything we can short of crossing that line. Canada, for example, has been sending a variety of um, uh, military weapons ranging from anti-tank missiles right down to hand grenades, Um, other states doing various other things, but always mindful not to go too far. Can we ship enough in through the back door to sustain Ukraine? I mean, can you do this for any period of time or is it just a matter of time before Russia decides enough's enough and brings in the big rocks? Yeah, that's a So I, I think that one possibility here is that a Ukrainian insurgency in some form is maintained for quite a while. 
and makes life difficult for Russian forces and therefore makes it politically um, unpalatable for Putin to keep going the way he's going. The big question then is whether he starts to back down or at least um, look for, as everybody calls them now, off ramps of mm. some kind of negotiation or whether, as you say, he goes in the opposite direction. It's hard to imagine things being worse than they are right now, but they could be. The fact that this has gone on 13 days, has, has Putin lost this? Well, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not he thought that he could do this in three days and therefore he's you know, way behind now since we're on day 13. I don't think he's lost it. Remember, this is Russia. And even yeah. though they're struggling, it's an incredibly um, uh, large state with a large military and a lot of firepower behind it. Um, but he's certainly lost it politically, or at least is losing it. And you see that not so much um, in Russia itself domestically, although we have hints of it being um, unpalatable to the Russian population. But the Russian media is so carefully controlled, we can't get a, a very good picture there. But we certainly see it internationally with not just states, but big corporations, mm. individuals with tremendous influence. Um, all you know, the longshoremen have decided not to unload Russian containers now. Um, there's a huge upswell of support for Ukraine and turning into anti-Russia. And in that sense, Putin really miscalculated. How do you think China is viewing this and reacting? Because many have said if this was China and it was Taiwan, not Ukraine, the situation would be much, much different. How do we how do we learn from Russia and apply to China? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because what's similar is you have two big powers with uh, contested areas, geographic areas that they want to control, in China's case, Taiwan. Um, I think one of the key differences is that China, by all indications over you know, quite a long period of time now, really wants, really desires to be a good international citizen. And so that's going to condition um, whatever moves it might be contemplating vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Um, it's clear that Putin doesn't care about that. You know, and, he, and even before this, we would have said Putin cared less about that than right. China does um, and the Chinese leadership does. But now we see that he really doesn't, you know, it's not even a factor at all. Um, but for China, it is. And China's also much more integrated into the international economy and dependent on those linkages um, than Russia is, which isn't to say Russia isn't dependent on them, but China much more much more a leadership role in the international economy, much more dependent on being um, accepted into the international economy. What so is a win? Can, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, so while, you know, there are similarities and there's lots of speculation about China taking notes on what it should do right and wrong vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, I think the overarching question here or, you know, conditional factor for China is that um, it doesn't want to be in the position Putin's in now of being an international pariah. Dr. Jane Bolden with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, Royal Military College. Jane, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Day 13 into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we've heard about the 60-kilometer convoy. Uh, we've certainly seen the horrific images of uh, not only people being driven from their homes. There's over 2 million people have have left Ukraine. Uh, those that have stayed, uh, horrific uh, signs of, of the ravages of war and such. And obviously, uh, the... Uh, uh, the president, President Zelensky, uh, talking to UK Parliament uh, the other day with uh, a, an almost uh, Churchill-like uh, speech and and begging people to close the airspace. Which, of course, uh, as soon as air wars get into this and we're, we're uh, we cross that NATO uh, boundary, that NATO border uh, into Ukraine, that that triggers uh, theoretically U.S. and Russian conflict and therefore uh, possibly World War Three. What are the options other than that how far can this go to that point or even nuclear reaction let's bring in dr jane bolden professor department of political science royal military college and with us now jane thank you for the time i hope you're well thank you yes i hope you're well as well we know that what happens if that line is crossed by either side what options does nato have other than doing that how close can to the edge can we go here well, that's that's a difficult question to nail down exactly. I think the evidence of the uncertainty about where that line is, um, we've seen in the last 24 hours with the back and forth over the question of whether um, older fighter jets could somehow go from Poland into Ukraine to be used by Ukrainian forces without it being seen by the Russians as NATO provocation. And the U.S. pulling away from that idea in the last 24 hours, I think, is an indication of how difficult it is to know how much support we can give Ukraine in practical military terms without triggering a full war. Um, So what happens in the meantime is that we, meeting NATO countries, try to do everything we can short of crossing that line. Canada, for example, has been sending variety of um, uh, military weapons ranging from anti-tank missiles right down to hand grenades, Um, other states doing various other things, but always mindful not to go too far. Can we ship enough in through the back door to sustain Ukraine? I mean, can you do this for any period of time or is it just a matter of time before Russia decides enough's enough and brings in the big rocks? Yeah, that's a So... I think that one possibility here is that a Ukrainian insurgency in some form is maintained for quite a while and makes life difficult for Russian forces and therefore makes it politically um, unpalatable for Putin to keep going the way he's going. The big question then is whether he starts to back down or at least um, look for, as everybody calls them now, off ramps of Mm. some kind of negotiation or whether, as you say, he goes in the opposite direction. It's hard to imagine things being worse than they are right now, but they could be. The fact that this has gone on 13 days, has has Putin lost this? Well, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not he thought that he could do this in three days and therefore he's, you know, way behind now since we're on day 13. I don't think he's lost it. Remember, this is Russia. 
And even yeah. though they're struggling, it's an incredibly um, uh, large state with a large military and a lot of firepower behind it. Um, but he's certainly lost it politically, or at least is losing it. And you see that not so much um, in Russia itself domestically, although we have hints of it being um, unpalatable to the Russian population. But the Russian media is so carefully controlled, we can't get a, a very good picture there. But we certainly see it internationally with not just states, but big corporations, mm. individuals with tremendous influence. Um, all, you know, the longshoremen have decided not to unload Russian containers now. Um, there's a huge upswell of support for Ukraine and turning into anti-Russia. And in that sense, Putin really miscalculated. How do you think China is viewing this and reacting? Because many have said if this was China and it was Taiwan, not Ukraine, the situation would be much, much different. How do we how do we learn from Russia and apply to China? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because what's similar is you have two big powers with uh, contested areas, geographic areas that they want to control, in China's case, Taiwan. Um, I think one of the key differences is that China, by all indications over you know, quite a long period of time now, really wants, really desires to be a good international citizen. And so that's going to condition um, whatever moves it might be contemplating vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Um, it's clear that Putin doesn't care about that. You know, and, he, and even before this, we would have said Putin cared less about that than right. China does, um, and the Chinese leadership does. But now we see that he really doesn't, you know, it's not even a factor at all. Um, but for China, it is. And China's also much more integrated into the international economy and dependent on those linkages um, than Russia is, which isn't to say Russia isn't dependent on them, but China much more much more a leadership role in the international economy, much more dependent on being um, accepted into the international economy. What so is a win? Can, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, so while, you know, there are similarities and there's lots of speculation about China taking notes on what it should do right and wrong vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, I think the overarching question here or, you know, conditional factor for China is that um, it doesn't want to be in the position Putin's in now of being an international pariah. Let's bring in Percy Sherwood, PhD candidate in media studies at Western University, uh, research including storytelling in the digital age. Percy, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. I remember very vividly watching this live as this story broke and and even initially thinking something here is not right. This is just not adding up. There just doesn't seem to be enough information here uh, uh, to be even talking about this. Uh, that being said, it evolved, and we know what would happen. Patrick Brown was eventually uh, ousted and, uh, and, and has since moved on with his life. Now there is uh, a, a settlement. What's your reaction to this uh, and, and this settlement? Yes, Scott. Well, you know, it, it was a shame to uh, see the story today, and I think it was damaging for the alleged survivors, uh, Patrick Brown himself, and the credibility of journalists 
um, you know, when I when we teach in journalism, uh, all first year students know that, you know, journalism's essence is a discipline of verification. So a journalist will test and verify a person's story in the same way that they will fact check, say, a politician's comments or find multiple eyewitnesses or people who can corroborate an event. Um, and so ensuring accurate and fair reporting is really paramount in this field. And so what we have here is perhaps, you know, when journalism uh, does go wrong in a sense that um, perhaps maybe the homework didn't, uh, wasn't done in, you know, verifying some of the fundamental facts in their story. Um, I, as I said, I remember watching this when it all happened. And what I was surprised at is that once it was dropped, we never heard anything more about it other than, of course, the demise of Patrick Brown and, and, you know, life goes on, uh, sort of speak. Now, obviously, you know, we've had the situation in Ottawa. Uh, we're trying to get out of a COVID-19 global pandemic. And many are questioning and asking whether they're being heard or not. How do you mix that into this conversation? And and do we have some work to do? Well, there definitely is, um, you know, work to do. I think if we look at the side of the, uh, you know, the survivors who came forward in this story, um, that's one point of uh, question that I would like to see, you know, sort of what happens, because I do feel for them in the sense that, you know, perhaps they now are subject to the victim uh, of greater scrutiny and skepticism um, in the sense that uh, their stories perhaps have been changed. Um, perhaps maybe they remembered it differently, which is fine, but the journalists perhaps didn't uh, press them enough or, you know, did, did not do enough research to corroborate these uh, stories. So in terms of uh, getting heard, um, you know, the journalist does have a lot of work to do in terms of representing uh, people's stories uh, accurately and correctly. Are you assuming that there was a side of the story here that wasn't told? Um, because couldn't we also interpret that like there was no other story to be told when the facts were finally researched? Um, there wasn't a story here. You keep coming back to the, the victims, the victims, the victims. We don't know if there really ever were victims here or if this was jumping the gun, jumping the shark. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the details are, are quite thin in this story. And so, you know, we don't know a lot about what happened. Um, and of course, there was no legal uh, proceeding uh, as to, you know, look at the facts at what happened. So that sort of limits the journalists uh, in a sense. But, uh, you know, I tend to, uh, you know, err on the side of caution. And if somebody does come forward with, with an al- allegation, I do think, you know, we have to believe them. But that doesn't um, that doesn't leave the journalists, um, you know, looking into the facts beforehand. Because, as you say, if there wasn't a story, well, perhaps this wasn't wouldn't have been published. That's my point. Again, you know, we're always and we always should be aware of victims' needs and such. But in in this case, are we looking for a story that is not there? Um, well, that's. That's hard to say, Scott, because uh, I don't I don't 
totally have the facts. Uh, well, none of us have the facts. and, and the Well, none of us, there. yeah, but that's the whole point here, Percy. <laughs> none of us had the facts, but yet a man lost his career. Right, yeah. And I think, you know, again, it comes down to the fact that research and corroboration has to be done, and, and this does take time. You know, if you look at um, the, the work by the New York Times by, uh, for instance, Jody Candor, the, uh, in the uh, Weinstein allegations, you know, each person had to be corroborated by, you know, I believe like other two other sources. So it does take a lot of time to conduct these investigations thoroughly. And that's sort of where my questions lay. What is your answer or message to those who may say, uh, well, who are unhappy with the media, feeling that it's not telling their side of the story? Well, uh, you know, my message is, you know, journalists are still, you know, trying their best despite, uh, you know, sort of years of, of attrition in the industry. Mm. Um, and they are stretched thin um, in terms of resources. But uh, it, there is a lot of work to be done in, in journalism for, you know, improving representation and diversity and making sure, you know, stories do get told. Um, in ways that follow journalistic ethics. All right, lots of focus on uh, the conservative leadership race. Another local candidate uh, jumping into the ring. Also, uh, chatter about Patrick Brown. Of course, the... uh, uh, the uh, news broke today that uh, Patrick Brown, who had sued CTV uh, for the story uh, that they broke on his uh, sexual um, uh, escapades and such, uh, they've come to a settlement in that. And obviously CTV saying uh, they regret publishing the story uh, with the incorrect facts. So that could be in time for, in fact, Patrick Brown to throw his hat into the ring. To talk more about all of this, Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, and with this now daniel thanks for the time i hope you're well thank you scott i hope you're doing well as well are you surprised at how much attention the conservative leadership race is getting i mean i'm a i'm a political head a junkie but i you know but man even some of the steps too deep into the weeds for me are you surprised how much attention it's getting very much surprising i for me i would rather listen to the conservative leadership race right before i'm going to go to bed because i kind of need that little (laughs) bit of melatonin to kind of knock me over the edge but for a race that really hasn't gotten off the ground yet, a lot of people are talking about it. Why do you think that is? Why are people interested in, you know, something that isn't happening until September 10th and a party that the majority of Canadians say they're not interested in? I think at the end of the day, everyone likes a little bit of drama. We like a little bit of spice in our life. And I think that's what a leadership race is. It's providing a different view of Canada. So even if you're not a fan of the Conservative Party, there's something for you to want to tune into, whether that's the interdynamics between the people that are running or the ideas that they're putting forward for Canada. And I think this is a great move for the Conservative Party that people are so interested in it because during election time, you don't always have the same amount of energy. Are we focusing on the conservative leadership because we don't want to cover the prime minister? Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think when it comes to the conservative leadership race, what people are looking at is kind of the counter to the prime minister to kind of see who will be the protagonist to his main character lead after September 10th. So I don't think it's because of a lack of coverage, especially given how much the Prime Minister does love the media. I don't think that's a reason why we're seeing it. I think people are kind of getting interested in the Conservative Party. We've come on a long time with Justin Trudeau. That 
positive sunny wave brand that he came in on has kind of diminished. So people might be looking for a new flavor to try at the next election. So are people looking for a strong opposition, obviously? I, I think they are, especially when in any parliamentary system, it's great to have an opposition party that functions like an options, opposition party, something we haven't seen in a while from the Conservative Party or any real party that with that said. So I think this is an opportunity for Canadians to kind of see what else is out there to kind of test the waters a little bit. And again, a leadership race is a great idea for that, because for better or for worse, you have a lot of ideas of where Canada should go. Some ideas should never be repeated again, but that's for the <laughs> Conservative members to decide at the end of the day. Why September 10th? I remember when I first heard this, I'm thinking, come on, you know, we need some opposition now. Let's go. Uh, but obviously, considering what we're talking about here, uh, the longer this goes, the better it seems to play into the conservative favor. Why September? I think that's kind of the middle ground. Uh, if you're following the race closely, like I'm sure some of your listeners are, you would know that Pierre Polyev and his team were asking the race be pretty much next week because he wanted a yeah. short race so that there was less opportunity for people to enter and for people to build up their name recognition because he has strong name rec, where other people in the party wanted to see a race go as far as December. And I don't think that's a Christmas present everybody wanted. So December 10th is kind of the middle ground that they found that kind of keeps both sides of the Conservative Party happy. Your thoughts on Patrick Brown, the revelations today uh, with CTV and uh, his uh, lawsuit, and, and we know what happened there with, with him losing his position uh, as leader of the provincial PC party. Is now this all priming for him to announce his candidacy? I think it sets the stage for him. And just for clarification, I was an intern under Patrick Brown's leadership back in the day. That said, I think when we were splitting hairs over the age of a girl that he may have had relationships with i don't mm. think it's something that conservative party members will be looking too favorably on in an election it's hard enough to communicate your ideas let alone saying no the girl was actually 19 not 18 or whatever it was i don't think it changes the tone he, there's a lot of baggage that comes with him for better or for worse and i to be frank with you i don't think he's the face that conservatives need in the next election to be put forward you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 CHML. Many have been asking, uh, obviously the Prime Minister is uh, touring Europe right now, uh, Christia Freeland and Melanie Jolie also uh, there, uh, going from place to place and, and giving his well wishes and such, um, uh, but he is also being questioned about foreign policy and questioned about uh, why Canada isn't spending more on its NATO commitments and what Canada can do to help uh, Europe and the world uh, in their struggle to to find uh, to find energy uh, and with all hands on deck uh, the, those questions unfortunately don't seem to be answered uh, at this point a CBC reporter asked uh, Christia Freeland and Melanie Jolie point blank uh, why they're there and should they be there considering the domestic issues at home and he basically got a dressing down uh, with Christia Freeland says I don't know anybody that's questioning us being here uh and melanie jolie saying she rejected the question uh, just when he asked to for them to qualify what they were doing and what was really going on there so is it time for canada to start making changes to its foreign policy whether it's energy whether it's military spending moving forward let's bring in dr alan sens professor of teaching department of political science university of british columbia and is with us now doctor thanks for the time i hope you're well I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. 
so your thoughts on is this going to change policy? Uh, we've seen the, the prime minister certainly front and center almost every day or members of his staff every day on this uh, talking about the concerns of Ukraine. Uh, however, when he's questioned by foreign media on NATO spending or commitments to energy, he seems to be a little shy on that. Is it time for uh, not only Canada, but the rest of the world to take a look at this again? Well, I think when we look to our own foreign policy and defense policy, I actually don't think there's going to be much need for a change. Our current defense policy titled Strong, Secure, Engaged is actually a pretty sound conceptual document. The problem has always been whether the government is going to commit the resources necessary to develop the Canadian military and give it the capabilities it needs going forward. That's always been the big question. I think now the government is going to come under increasing pressure, both at home and from abroad, to actually live up to the commitments in this defense policy. So I think if there's going to be a big change, it's going to be in the direction of increased funding for the Canadian forces going forward. We've heard that there's oftentimes money is left unspent. Is that accurate? It can be. It depends on how uh, procurement programs are stretched out. Some money has to be put aside for, for that reason, because weapons procurements proceed more slowly than anticipated. Uh, to say that there's sometimes money left over, though, that money is all committed into certain programs. And so it might be sitting in an account somewhere, but it, it, it is committed. And so it will be spent eventually. So, again, we've seen the Prime Minister front and centre uh, quite a bit in the last week uh, w- with various leaders and such. Are we going to see any sort of commitment to that? Will we hear any announcement on that, do you think? I think we're going to be quite consistent with our allies. I mean, Canada's moved in lockstep with its allies on the Ukraine situation. We've moved in lockstep on sanctions. We've moved in lockstep on diplomatic positioning and our public uh, relations. And we've moved in lockstep with supporting the Ukraine with both lethal and non-lethal assistance. Now, of course, we don't have as much to offer as other countries, and we are a long way away. But Canada's also committed to the defense of NATO, witness the battle group uh, in Latvia, and which was recently reinforced, the government uh, has announced. And so we have been doing quite a bit, but Canada's defense and foreign policies have always worked in tandem with our allies, whether it's Canada-US cooperation or Canada-NATO cooperation. And I think we can expect that to stay the same. That being said, Alan, can we expect Canada to ante up? Because many of these other uh, allies are complaining that we're in the lower half of uh, of contribution with only 1.4% when they're asking for a minimum of 2%. So even though we're reacting, um, you know, in unison with everybody else, it appears we're still not contributing what we should be. There's no question. And that's a long, uh, long criticism of Canada and NATO. That's not going away. And it's only going to intensify as that figure and a variety of other uh, levels of contribution, troop size, the size of forces, for example, um, are highlighted by the tensions that have been brought about by the Ukraine crisis. This government is gonna come under increasing pressure to strengthen its defense posture, increase its defense spending. And of course, it'll come at exactly the time where the government is gonna be expected to respond uh, to efforts to get us out of the pandemic crisis and, of course, address larger issues related to climate change, adaptation, and mitigation. So it's going to be quite a set of challenges going forward. 
What about energy? Because that was another immediate concern. Uh, many are wondering why Canada is not contributing more, why they we are seemingly shutting down our industry as opposed to helping these other parts of the world with much cleaner energy. Do you see a change in energy policy? I don't see a major change in energy policy going forward. There might be a short-term uh, surge in production uh, out of Canadian oil fields because of the increased viability of our production given the cost structure uh, and rising costs of oil generally. So there might be a bit of a surge in the medium term, but over the long term, the fundamentals of the uh, fossil fuel industry are not really that strong. Transitions are happening around the world. And I think Canada's going to have to adapt to that and adapt to that quite quickly and transition to becoming uh, a clean energy power as well as providing the ongoing fossil fuels uh, um, resources that are still going to be needed for some time yet. Uh, again, and many say, you know, uh, what this debate seems to be about is more transition than anything. Uh, people are looking for solutions now, and this is a problem we've been working on for many, many, many decades now. Um, so is the answer wind turbines, solar energy, uh, electric vehicles? I mean, is that going to save Europe? I don't know that's going to save Europe in the in the short term. Um, I think in the in the immediate term, we're going to see a surge in oil prices along with inflationary pressure that's going to cause a lot of challenges in economies around the world. That's that's the first thing that's going to happen. Over the longer term, though, it's quite clear that not only is there going to be pressure on fossil fuels from the climate change angle, but there's increasingly going to be pressure on fossil fuel supplies from the strategic angle. The uh, crisis has highlighted the dependence of Europe in particular, but other parts of the world as well, on Russian energy supplies. And this crisis has exposed the dangers of that. So I think you're going to see the fossil fuel sector come under pressure from both of these uh, angles over the next five to ten years. Dr. Alan Sands with us, Professor of Teaching, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia. Alan, thank you for the time. Best of luck. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kieran Moore holding a news conference, Ontario's top doc today, uh, talking about uh, masking regulations and those lifting the uh, after March break, not mandatory anymore. But here's uh, an interesting clip of, of Dr. Moore talking about how it's your choice now. And it's important that we respect everyone's choice, whether that's to mask up or not. Here's what Dr. Moore had to say. Should individuals choose or are required to continue to wear a mask at school or childcare, I would ask that we respect and be supportive of these decisions. The government will continue to provide free masks and personal protective equipment for staff and students that choose to wear them in both school and childcare settings. The government has also made 3.6 million rapid antigen tests available to school boards and childcare settings every two weeks. And these shipments of RITs will continue to support symptomatic testing for students, staff, and children. All right, that's Dr. Kieran Moore uh, earlier today at a news conference talking about Ontario getting out or living with uh, COVID-19 and this global pandemic and obviously changing in mass protocol. What does this all mean? Breaking it all down. Allison Smith is with us, Queen's Park today. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, you as well. Okay, so uh, give us a bit of a breakdown and timeline here. When this all starts, when it all takes place and and uh, what we can and cannot do. Yeah, I mean, you saying living with uh, living with COVID nineteen—that's actually the name of the uh, 
the briefing documents the the Ministry of Health gave uh, reporters today. So that's very much the the message they are pushing. Um, you know, March 21st, not long from now, uh, right when students come back from March break, they will not have to wear masks in schools anymore, nor will their teachers. You uh, Ontarians will not have to wear a mask to go into any stores. The people that work there, the people that work in restaurants, diners, um, where, you know, masking, masking is going to mostly be out um, except for public transit, long-term care homes and hospitals. Um, maybe a few other kind of uh, jails and, and homeless shelters. They'll still right. keep requiring masking up until April 27th. Um, but, and that, you know, if all goes to plan, then we will be a, a mask-free province right as we uh, the provincial government rolls into an election campaign just a few days after that. And you were saying, so uh, obviously um, mandatory, your choice after March uh, 21st, but as of April 27th, if everything continues on this trajectory, uh, we're going to see a a relaxation of all protocol. That's accurate? Yep, that's it. The um, emergency orders are going to be winding down by then, too. Ontario has been, you know, being governed by a kind of ever-changing uh, slate of emergency orders ever since um, March 2020. So that that's going to be gone too. Um, so I guess what we can imagine is that we're going to, it's going to feel uh, maybe like February 2020 again. Um, although I think we've all been through a lot since, so we might not all feel the same. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there'll be just as many people anxious uh, on this day as there were way back on those uh, as they were way back when. Uh, the doctor did stress that this was your choice, and that each of us have to sort of assess our own uh, risks when making these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, he encouraged people, um, you know, not to uh, intimidate or harass people, others who continue to wear masks. Um, very much stressing that, you know, we all have our own sort of personal choice when it comes to safety now. That's sort of the, the direction that this is going. Um, you know, Dr. Moorhead himself said that he plans to continue wearing a mask if he goes into busy places like an airport or a mall. So I think we can expect that, you know, lots of, lots of Ontarians will do that, maybe uh, especially at first. Um, but I, I guess Probably, probably, maybe some people forever. I don't know. Um, uh, it, what it really does, uh, you know, Dr. Moore said he didn't face any pressure from the government to uh, provide these directives. Um, but it, it, at the same time, it, it, it fulfills exactly what Premier Doug Ford and the PCs hoped, which is that heading into the campaign, which is, begins at the very beginning of May, uh, May 4th, I believe, that, you know, Ontario would be as back to normal, would would be back to normal. And it looks like that's going to be the case. Uh, and the doctor always said there's always a chance that if things spike up or something else happens that we could go back. But obviously that's that's not in the foreseeable future. Yeah, hopefully not. I don't think anybody wants to yeah. uh, to return to, you know, some of the the really intense public health measures we've uh, we've been through. I mean, there are some, you know, people that are saying that this is happening too fast. Um, Dr. Peter Juni, who's on the, the science table, he said as much today uh, that, that the province is being too hasty and that, you know, other jurisdictions that have had lifted masks 
mandates, uh, you know, aren't doing so great. I mean, south of the border in the United States, they're they're still experiencing, you know, upwards of a thousand deaths per day, sometimes, you know, quite a bit higher than that. And that's in a country that's, you know, mostly forgone masking and all that, but, you know, maybe a few cities still enforce it. Um, so it, it's not that, it's, I guess, you know, this is a tough virus. We don't know how to, it, it, we don't have all the solutions, but I, it seems like this is the political calculus that the, that the government hoped and the, the science advice that they're receiving. Uh, and we also have to remember, uh, unlike other places in the world, as the as Dr. Uh, Kieran Moore said today, uh, over 90% of Ontarians are vaccinated. So that changes a lot. <laughs> that changes a lot of this. Absolutely. That is great. Um, the vaccination rate in Ontario is one of the highest in the world. And, you know, it still even keeps climbing. People that are, you know, adults are still, you know, getting their first doses. So, um that that is great and i think that's why our hospitalization rate while it's not super low it, it's been kind of shrinking down um and we're, that we're able to start um you know moving on from this stuff and, and and most people i i expect will will be happy about it and 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 maybe feel safe going to you know walmart or a grocery store without a mask on um you know I, for one, think it's going to be a, a big shift. <laughs> Obviously, earlier today, Dr. Kieran Moore announcing that as of March 21st, uh, man, uh, masks are no longer mandatory. You can feel free to wear one. Uh, it's not like they're illegal. <laughs> it's just that it'll no longer be mandatory, and they're hoping that by April 27th, uh, they can remove all of the restrictions and protocol in around this uh, global pandemic. Uh, whenever we have these debates, is it uh, time? Uh, will it ever be time? Should we wait another two weeks? <laughs> Which seems to be a discussion we've been having for about two years now, uh, when you stop to ponder it. Let's bring in Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson, and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. So is it time? <laughs> Do we wait? Well, Do we go? Will know, it ever be time, Tim? <laughs> We're heading, like tomorrow, tomorrow is always tomorrow, isn't it? Isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're heading the right direction, Scott. The trend is there. We're inevitably moving towards some form of new normality, whatever actual color that takes on. But, you know, uh, we can't move that quickly on this thing. Uh, there's a number of reasons why I think we should just hold off a bit and see how it goes. Take gingerly steps as we fling open the gate. Don't rush over the other side. We don't quite know what's there yet. Bit by bit, we've got um, we've got uh, March break coming up. I mean, if there ever was an opportunity for a lot of cross pollination and uh, and and so on, I think we should wait until that happens and see what the figures look like then. The data are looking not too bad at the moment. We've got hospitalization rates which are steadily going down. Uh, we've got ICU rates which are going down. The wastewater isolation rates, they're all over the place. So some of them are going up slightly, some of them are going down. But, but in, in general, they're not causing any great alarm at the moment. Uh, we think that the new uh, subvariant BA2 might be responsible for some of that increase in some parts of Ontario, particularly the north of Ontario, oddly enough. I don't quite know why. But uh, uh, we've got all the f under fives who haven't had any vaccines really at all yet. Uh, so we've done well on vaccination, but let's just hold off a bit. 10 to 14 days, again, I think would, be, would give us a much better uh, picture.
Dr. Moore said, uh, obviously mandatory lifted, but it's still your choice and to assess your own risk. How would you address that? I think that's right on. And I think uh, it it immediately got me thinking of the days when we had uh, anti-smoking bylaws in restaurants. Do you remember? And all the Mm -hmm. restaurant owners were saying, if we have a bylaw against smoking, nobody will show up. I mean, I'll I'll lose all my customers. But in fact, what happened is that all the the non-smokers were looking for restaurants with a bylaw like that. And uh, and so it, it settled out. And I think this is what's going to happen here. Ontario's got a really good record of both vaccination, not the best in the world, but we're way up there, and also for masking. Apart from a few uh, noisy people, uh, most people are wearing masks. And I think what's going to happen if we pull this through a little bit, uh, that uh, anybody uh, is, is invited to still wear a mask, certainly old, nasty, old, crusty people like me, uh, uh, and anybody with heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, their best advice is to wear a mask when they go on the subway or, or uh, go to a, a sports arena or a concert or something like that. I think that'll be good advice for the indefinite future. We need to protect them. Uh, You mentioned over 90% of Ontarians are vaccinated. How does that change the discussion? Because many many are still apprehensive about this. Many are still anxious and and say that, uh, you know, even when the vaccine passports disappeared a a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were people looking for, is there any restaurants still doing it? Um, What do you say to those that are still skeptical and, and may always be about this? Well, if we pull this thing few, uh, along a bit, say another six months, let's take us to the, to the fall of the year, when hopefully we really will be in an endemic phase. We're still in pandemic phase at the moment. We can see pandemic on the horizon. Let's, let's move there and see what it's going to look like. We're almost back to normal. A lot of people still are preferring to wear a mask when they go shopping or go into the shopping mall or whatever, and that's fine. We'll see little flare-ups of uh, cases here and there, isolated cases, little clusters here and there. That'll be the virus picking off the remaining unvaccinated people Mm. because that's what it will do. It'll be with us indefinitely, and if you're not vaccinated, it'll get you eventually, sooner or later. Uh, remember, though, unfortunately, those people who aren't vaccinated are two kinds. There's people who voluntarily do that and the mm-hmm. people who like to do that, but their immune system is conked out. I mean, whether they're on immune suppressive therapy or they've had a transplant or on cancer therapy or something, we need to protect those people by having as many people around. And so far, the last figures I saw were about 7 million Ontarians have had vaccination up to three doses, which is really good. We've got about another estimated four and a half, maybe five million who've been infected. So put that together and you've got a very good proportion in Ontario. It's not 100%, but a very good proportion. And that's going to slow down the virus. But remember now, we, we, this is all given that there's no new variant that appears and suddenly, uh, you know, it, it re- wreaks its havoc upon society. I That's a valid I... point. That's a valid point, too, Tim, because I- at the end of the day, many of us have had it vaccinated and fully vaccinated uh, and have moved on. And, and at the end of the day, with this variant, it just does not, although trans- high transmiss- uh, transmissibility rate, it just the, the risk of becoming seriously ill if vaccinated just isn't as high. That's correct, and uh, that's, that's a redeeming feature here. I mean, the, the reason that you get a dominant variant is nothing to do with disease or how virulent it is. It's, it's, it's how rapidly it spreads. 
And this last one, in fact, has now been to take over the record. You know, we had measles as the record-breaking virus that would be the highest on the list for most effective. Now, this one's taking over. In fact, the second one, the BA2, the subvariant of coronavirus, of, uh, of uh, uh, Omicron, uh, appears to be even faster than the BA1. So it's, we're laying to record-breaking territory here. But fortunately, it doesn't, for most people, appear to be as uh, dangerous. But of course, large numbers of people getting it, you're still going to get cases. And we're still seeing people in hospital, but not as much as we did. Timothy Sly, Timothy Sly with his epidemiologist at School of Population Public Health, Ryerson University. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. Want to bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, only got a few minutes with him, but want to bring, uh, get some up-to-date answers on questions we have. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm fine. I'm a little tired, but uh, maybe <laughs> on the way by Friday. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, we're seeing the Prime Minister and Canadian uh, ministers uh, start to receive some pressure uh, from world media and such, asking for why they're not spending more on NATO, why they're not uh, helping us out or helping the Europe out with uh, clean energy as opposed to shutting down pipelines. It seemed that ministers seemed to double down, saying that this was not the answer. Uh, the answer is not more oil, but more renewables. So what does that mean? Why doesn't Europe just go solar? Well, look, uh, Europe is in the problem it's in. Putin was able to do what he did. And Canada thinks that the, or the, Prime Minister, uh, the Prime Minister actually believes that what uh, we're facing in the front is an absolute uh, wall uh, that we should, uh, rather than slow down, put on the accelerator. Well, then Canadians are going to be the ones, uh, they're going to have to scrape off those uh, cement walls. I mean, at the end of the day, these guys are tone deaf. Uh, the fact that gasoline, diesel, and other products could get to that high, destroying the purchasing power of every Canadian in this country, shows to me the extent to which he is completely oblivious to reality. And, of course, if you want to live in the world of magic and make-believe, that's fine. But you shouldn't be representing this country. So are renewables the answer? Is that the alternative? They're saying more renewables, not more gas. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about renewables in the province of Ontario. Your, your, your cost of electricity has gone up fourfold. The government's covering it 6.5 billion bucks a year in debt so that it doesn't wind up quadrupling. Do you want to do more of that? Because the, the phoniness and, of course, the shortcomings of these renewables are exactly why Europe has got itself in the position that it does today. On bended knee to Vladimir Putin, they've paid him because they weren't prepared to do it themselves. You imagine Boris Johnson saying to Trudeau, you can talk all you want about renewables, but we've been there. We've done that. We bought the shirt, and you know what? We can't afford it. So we're going well, to you know, you bring crap. up a very valid point because Germany, who, you know, the pipeline to, to Russia, we know that story, uh, they were always cutting edge when it come to renew, came to renewable energy, yet shutting down nuclear and relying on Russia. So if there was a alternative, would we not know it? Would it not be in front of our face right now? Well, it would be, and it's not. Look, uh, you can talk about solar panels and windmills and EVs all you want, but don't take my word for it. When you're our friend uh, Elon Musk, the metaphor for the new renewable energy yeah. says yeah. we need more oil. And his comment, I think, was really a, I mean, Guy Foxian, that would be the guy that blew up Parliament back a couple hundred but a years ago. He comes over and he says, uh, you know, uh, desperate times require desperate measures. Even the green folks understand this. Those are involved in business. So why does the prime minister not understand this? Why does his uh, parliamentarians around him not understand this? 
because they've never actually had to meet a payroll. They've never had to worry about the consequences of their woke actions that are destroying the purchasing power, the ability for Canadians to enjoy the benefits of affordable energy. And you know what? We've done it damn good in this country. We're clean. We've done nuclear. We've done hydro. Uh, that is hydroelectric, as you know, just down the street uh, in, in Niagara Falls. And we've done uh, sequestration and capturing CO2. And we've provided oil with less methane. And we are continuing down this road. Not that any bloody Canadian would actually uh, take the time to consider this. But you have a prime minister in this country who just wants to go around and uh, pontificate and uh, be a smartass on the, on the international level. At the end of the day, folks... If you don't like $2 a litre for gasoline, why the hell would you take this guy seriously? And if you're living in Hamilton or you happen to live in Oakville or Burlington or any of these places, Lancaster, why would you continue to support this nonsense? You can't afford it. It's uh, it's fascinating that when the uh, uh, politicians and, and, and those ministers are questioned on this, they always go to renewable, but they never seem to have a solution uh again i'm i'm a guy in my late 50s we've been talking about this for 30 years yes we've made some tremendous progress but honestly dan i don't see us becoming off of fossil fuel in my lifetime um because you know even in 10 or 20 years we're still going to be reliant on fossil fuel to some extent yeah anybody who thinks that's going to happen is absolutely delusional and actually should be seeking medical uh, help. Well what is the replacement? What is the replacement is for fossil fuel? Well I mean what are they doing? Hemp? I mean yeah. that's the stuff you're I think some of these people are actually smoking it and they should be considering <laughs> the wider implications of what they're doing. Of course I'm being flippant, but when I'm tired and I recognize that everything I have said for the past 2 or 3 years that yeah. Canada will eventually paint itself into an environmental into an energy uh, crisis is now come to be. And worse, something I couldn't have seen coming, we now have a global security crisis on a scale that we haven't seen since the boys in jackboots made their way into the Sudetenland in the 1930s. So I really want your listeners to understand, Scott, this is not a joke anymore. We didn't see the gyrations in the international markets because, you know, we found a new way to, uh, to, uh, to get around. We need oil. We need natural gas. The world recognizes this. Canada is a leader. Stop dumping on what Canadians do right. The world wants more Canadian oil. They want more Canadian natural gas. It's only the internationally funded, perhaps even Russian funded activists who've gone in and played our, uh, to our good sense of decency and willingness to bend over backwards to kill pipelines in this mm. country. Three to four million barrels of oil would be flowing today to Europe and to places around the world. You'd drop the price of oil down to 90 bucks a barrel. You would have increased the value of the Canadian dollar. And you and I would be talking about $1.30 a litre gasoline, not $1.90. And by the way, it comes down 15 cents a litre for what it's worth. And I think it's worth a lot for people on Friday. And uh, diesel drops 35 cents a litre. So uh, just a little bit of a, you know, FYI mm. for, uh, for Friday. <laughs> Two years of a global pandemic. I think next week's the March break, which is uh, when it uh, unofficially started for all of us, I guess. Uh, I used to keep track of all the weeks. I don't even No, I think the last no uh, week number 91 was, I think, the last one I kept. Uh, yeah. Who knows how many weeks it's been? Whatever the equivalent is of two years, I'm guessing. Uh, do the math. Uh, first, a global pandemic, and then, you know, the divisiveness over vaccine and the whole Ottawa protest, such. Uh, and then we end up into 
uh, a global conflict with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some horrific images and uh, just heartbreaking stories coming out of Ukraine. Uh, how much more of this can we take? Let's bring in Sue Phipps, Chief Executive Officer, Canadian Mental Health Association, Hamilton Branch, and with us now. Sue, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Scott. So it seems we've been talking about this for a couple of years now, pandemic-related. Uh, then the divisiveness that came out of the back end of this, I guess, which we're still sort of experiencing. And now we're seeing conflict and in war, and there's talk of nuclear and, and, and world wars and such. How, how are we supposed to get through all this? Yeah, you know, Scott, the constant news coverage of these combined events, you know, serious world events can heighten one's fear, anxiety, hopelessness, and catastrophic thinking. And today's provincial announcement of loosening COVID-19 restrictions across the province may bring hope for some, but fear for others. So firstly, I do want to send my sincerest condolences to people who've lost loved ones in the Ukraine. It is a terrible tragedy and has seriously impacted so many people across the world. Um, if you are experiencing distress, I would suggest that you consider and f- reflect upon how much time you are spending listening to the news. <laughs> so yeah. minimize your catastrophic thinking by reducing time watching the news and replace this with grounding activities, self-care practices, unplug and distract yourself with things like music, walking outdoors or other mindful practices, practice gratitude for what you have, connect with people you care about and support those who you know have been impacted or ensure that they know how to access supports employers check in with your staff have they been personally affected and and also you can take action find out how you can support people in ukraine because there's lots going on and if you do take action remember to balance this with self-care so that you can sustain it and i would say if you're unable to reduce your distress on your own definitely seek support and know you're not alone you can call cmha hamilton at 905-521-0090 to help navigate the supports available to you if you're in a mental health crisis you can call a 24-hour crisis line like coast at 905-972-8338 or barrett center 905-529-7878 so i think you know with support and with doing some some good self-care practices you know we can get through this but it is overwhelming at times for sure uh you talked about following it too much guilty um because it's what i do but um obviously uh we have to do things to remove ourselves from it you talked about uh whether it's exercising or getting out or doing this doing whatever is that balancing out because i'm i'm even finding that after two years that becomes difficult yeah, it does become difficult, and I think we have to constantly be reminded, right? I think this is why something like this today is so important, Scott, just so that you can get it out there to remind people these things work. You know, they're they're proven, and we drop off, and we forget, and we don't do it, and we don't look after ourselves, and, and we aren't empathetic to others and support others in kind ways, and I think we have to remember that these people connections and looking after ourselves are really the key to, you know, getting through these these you know awful awful things that we have to face uh what about two events like this back to back and again many can say that yeah certainly the pandemic you know once in a lifetime thing hopefully uh but very much like a world war we've certainly seen conflict before uh similar to what we're seeing in ukraine um but that being said they're, they're two pretty big world events what about when you get two back to back do you just expect a third 
Oh, gosh, I hope not. I know people say bad things come in three, but uh, let's hope that, uh, you know, that's just a superstition. I would say, you know, it, it is overwhelming for sure. And, um, you know, I, I really hope that uh, that people are not thinking that a third terrible thing is going to happen. Because You I talked about focusing on what you have and the things that are working in your life. How important is that with the balance? You know what? I think it's crucial. I think actually a daily gratitude practice is really, really important so that people can, you know, instead of worrying about what you don't have or what could happen, you know, you're really focusing on the good things that you have in your life and feeling thankful for those things and and just, you know, focusing on what you do have. And it could be the simplest of things, you know, it could just be a sunny day. It could be, you know, a cup of coffee. So, you know, the smallest things, if you can mindfully, you know, feel grateful for those things every day, that really does make a big difference in, in your life. I found it fascinating, Sue, that during this exercise of two years that we find ourselves doing that. I, it was very hard for me to do that. It's like, wow, I take time and sit here and do nothing. What's that all about? It, it was hard to do, but easier now. Do you find yeah, I think it is. I think that's very true. I think people have been forced in a way to do this. And, and I mean, some people were good at it to begin with and lucky for them, but others, you know, it is a practice, right? And the more you practice it, the better you get at it. So just like any skill, right? Practice makes perfect. So I think if you do it every day, you're going to get better and better. Sue Phipps, Chief, uh, Chief Executive Officer, Canadian Mental Health Association, Hamilton Branch. Uh, obviously a pandemic, now a world conflict. Uh, you never lose hope and focus on what you do have. Sue, uh, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take good care. Ontario is offering all nurses incentive pay of up to $5,000 per person to encourage job retention. Uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott said on Monday the payments are meant to support nurses as the province recovers from the pandemic. Uh, she goes on to say, as we continue our efforts to build up our nursing workforce, this investment will help us retain, uh, retain the nurses that we already have. Uh, the price tag, 365, sorry, $363 million, and they will come to uh, from employers in two installments in a lump sum for full-time nurses and a, a prorated payment of for part-time and casual nursing staff. To talk more about all of this, uh, Morgan Hofarth is with us, President, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and with us now. Morgan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me. So, Morgan, what's the thought of this uh, $5,000 as a retention to stop uh, those in the nursing industry from leaving after this exhausting uh, pandemic? What's what's the response been? So, nurses in RNAO have been calling for the repeal of Bill 124 since uh, very early in this pandemic. And this, although it's not the repeal of Bill 124, is a small step in the right direction, but in and of itself will not be enough to keep nurses in the profession and keep nurses working in Ontario. Uh, that being said, what is needed then? So we need a lot more than financial support. One of the reasons that nurses are leaving working in Ontario yet is Bill 124 and not being adequately compensated on an ongoing basis. So a lump sum, although it's something doesn't actually uh, come close to keeping up with the cost of living. We know Bill 124 caps public sector salaries increases at 1% a year. Uh, so although it's something, it's not, and that's 
financial incentive is not enough. We also need to look at making sure that nurses have safe working conditions, safe workloads. It should be a concern not just for nurses, but also for people that are receiving nursing care. If you're asked to take care of more and more and more patients every day, you can't do all of the assessments, interventions, and provide all the nursing care that those people need. Uh, we really urgently need to look at our nursing workforce, but also look at our workplaces and make sure that what we're asking people to do is reasonable and safe. Uh, it, it seems uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and this has been a ongoing issue. This certainly hasn't isn't the first time we've had this discussion by any means. Uh, as many things have happened during the global pan, global pandemic, this has certainly pointed out uh, weak links. One of the things we have noticed with the global pandemic is this is a situation that is literally in every single province right the way across the country. I understand you're with the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, but it seems with all the provinces doing all of this and, and, and you know, each has its own uh, individual uh, uh, concerns and, and issues and, and demands and such, but it seemed what the global pandemic did, and I remember BC Premier Horgan standing up and said saying, you know, we've just had a meeting with all the premiers and we've all got the same problem and we need a funding formula restructuring of some sort, whatever that is, and we need the federal government to to, to lean on on its resources to try to, to, to bring something like that together. Do you feel that you're sort of, uh, these are Band-Aid solutions until we get everybody involved? Yeah, it, it is definitely a Band-Aid solution. We need a more proactive plan we need it you're right it is a not just a national but a global issue we are hearing from professional associations across the country about how a shortage of nursing is nursing and nurses is a serious concern in all jurisdictions and we need something to to fix this problem and maybe it is the federal government and having the transfer payments increased to the provinces to be able to adequately fund healthcare services across all sectors. Uh, it seems that, um, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time concentrating on, on bills or wait times or hallway medicine. My goodness, during any given election campaign, that's all that we hear about. And it seems that whenever we're looking for a solution, they're piecemeal solutions to help whatever the problem is of the day. Is the real solution here, and again, I'm not saying it's the feds paying more money. I'm not saying it's, it's uh, you know, looking to private alternatives to, to stabilize this. But it really seems the problem is a funding solution and everything else that you're talking about is just a result of that it is a funding problem but it also is the way that our health sector is structured so there's a lot of ways that we could be more efficient and more effective Um, there's a lot of ways that we could restructure how we provide care so making sure people have access to home care so they're able to stay in their homes and have care provided there that's a that's a less expensive option than having somebody requiring long-term care So making sure that we look at how we offer care across the health sector, as well as looking at social services and looking at the environment are really important to make sure that we that we do have health promotion and we do have a healthy 
a healthy Ontario, but also a healthy country. So there's a lot of things that could make a difference, um, but it needs more proactive planning, more upstream intervention, and less of a reaction to the current problem of today. Do you think there needs to be more consultation, more working with each province, in like the provinces working together? I mean, obviously, everybody's got their own situation. You certainly can't use one solution for one provinces, you know, for, for another. But there are a lot of common denominators here, and it seems that's the discussion we need to be having. Yeah, there are there are a lot of ways that the provinces could work together. Healthcare is uh, primarily provincially funded, it's provincially um, provided, so... It's, I know, but I know, Morgan. But that seems to always be a, that yeah. seems to always that seems to always be a scapegoat. You know, well, you know, it's private or it's publicly or sorry, provincially funded, so it's not really our jurisdiction, and and then the problem never seems to get solved. Whereas, again, what, what Pre- Premier Horgan of BC was pointing out was, you know, we all got to come together and find a solution and then customize it to each individual province. Yeah, I think there is definitely a lot of work and a lot of collaboration that could happen between the provinces that would be beneficial to everybody. Morgan Horfarth with us, President of Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Ontario offering up $5,000 as a job retention incentive. Morgan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. It is 545 News at the top of the hour. Weather and traffic on the way. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.